For our resurrection study this year, I want to do a short series on the theme, Cross Roads, referring, of course, to the cross and the roads that take us to there and why that's so important. I think as believers, we can never get very far away from the cross, nor do we want to distance ourselves from the cross, and there are good reasons for this. The cross is the central hinge of the gospel upon which all else hangs and swings. While it's very important that Christ rose from the dead after his suffering and torturous death on the cross, the resurrection is not held up by the New Testament apostles as the central tenant of the gospel. Paul admitted to the church of Corinth, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, to us now, who are being saved, here's what the cross is, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. So foolish or not, as viewed by men, Paul went on to say, we preach Christ crucified. Yes, stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, non-Jews, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1. And he didn't deviate from that emphasis because in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 2, Paul wrote this, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2. So he's basically saying when he came to Corinth, he could have preached on a lot of topics. I mean, think about it. The Old Testament is full of a lot of topics. But he thinks of Isaiah 53. He thinks of the message of the crucified Savior and that is what he wants to know. I don't want to know about this philosophy, that philosophy, this, this item, that I Let us talk about Christ and the cross. And all, of course, all the implications that flow out of uh, that teaching. Now, obviously, other doctrines in the gospel are weighty as well. Among them, the resurrection, which we celebrate at this uh, season of the year. He says in 1 Corinthians, also written to this church, 1 Corinthians 15, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So definitely resurrection is essential as well. But think about this. Resurrection has no context apart from death. Why would we be talking about resurrection if we're not talking about death? And it was the cross which became the instrument of Christ's death. So resurrection is the confirmation from God that Christ's death actually occurred. You don't bury people unless they're dead. And it is the affirmation from God that He has accepted the work of His Son on the cross as the atoning sacrifice for His people. The resurrection is God saying to His Son and to all that He represents, your work has been accepted. 
The cross made a grave for Jesus to be buried, and resurrection brought him up out of the grave in victory over death, which the Bible says is the last enemy you and I have to face. Now salvation is always then connected with the cross. Paul writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Christ, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, once you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out to you in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Colossians 1, verse 19 through 23. So, in writing to the Colossian church, he's saying the cross is central. Salvation comes through the cross, through Christ's physical body. That's why he had to come, by the way, in a physical form. Spirit, God is spirit, John 4, but spirits, you can't nail them to a cross. Spirits don't die. But physical human beings, they can die. And that's the port, import of Christ's incarnation. Now, if we think of our sin, and not only so, but of Satan, the enemy of our soul, who binds us to our need of a Savior, we are told, when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2 13 through 15. Again, cross being central for defeating Satan and the evil forces that he governs, for fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, which were against us. You know, we're sinners because we're lawbreakers. So the wages of sin is what? Death. So if Christ is going to pay for those sins, there's got to be death. And that's what the cross is all about. It's fulfilling the demand of the law towards sinners. You are supposed to die for your sins. So God comes along with Christ and he says, well, that's the way it ought to be. That's the way it's going to be, except for all those who are willing to have Christ stand in as their substitute. You want to die or do you want someone to represent you to die for you? Do you want his work to count as your work? Do you want his death for your sins to count as your death? And so God comes along and that's what the gospel is about. 
The cross is the means whereby God may forgive our sin. And it is also the death blow to Satan who does everything in his power to confuse and renounce and blind people to the message of forgiveness that is held out to them in the gospel of the cross. Satan doesn't want you to think about the cross. He doesn't want you to think about Christ standing in as your substitute. He doesn't want any of that. Even today, there may be some here who cannot quite see the benefit or the necessity of teaching on the cross. It's a moot point to you, but that Jesus died. There is no goosebumps or flashes of illumination when you hear this message. But God's ministers preach Christ and Him crucified because we are convinced with Paul that the cross is the hinge point of the gospel. Lose the cross and you lose the gospel. Paul says it this way, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews, but also for the Gentile. Romans 1 verse 16. It's the power of God to tell you how you're going to be able to defeat sin in your life, how you're going to be able to gain righteousness and the approval of God. Every other pathway, which people think are pathways to heaven, are negated because of the necessity of the cross. People don't see this essential need of the cross because they do not see their sin. They do not see that a death sentence is hanging over them, over their own heads, for their breach of God's law. They don't see that. They do not see themselves as lawbreakers when it comes to God's law. And even when we hear a person confessing that he or she sins, they do not see the sin as worthy of a death sentence. It is always um, it's a minor infraction. It's a mistake. It, it's, it's an error. It's a slip of the tongue. It's never intentional. It's never on purpose. It's never in defiance of God. It's never bad enough to need a Savior. It's never bad enough to need a stand-in to appease God's wrath. You mean God actually is angry with me? Oh, I don't quite see that. Well, yeah, that's the problem. And that's why you don't see that you need a Savior. When you're defining spiritual things, it's foolish to go to your own uh, definition. You know, if you're, if you're working for a company or you're working uh, in the area of, of some kind of business and you, you cannot go into that business and say, well, I think this and I think that. Well, I think I'll do my job this way or that way. They'll hand you uh, a, a job description and say, that says on the job description, this is when you report for work. This is your supervisor. This is you, what your job is. This is the way you will do your job. This is how you represent our company. Da, 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 da. It's all spelled out. And you cannot pull out your own little dictionary and say, well, employee, let me see, employee, I think I'm going to sleep in until 9 and show up at 10. I don't like this sleeping in until 5 and showing up at 6. How long do you think you're going to last on that? You don't get to set your definitions to someone who's in the authority over you. You don't get to set your definitions for heaven 
with the authority over you is God. He's defining where we stand in reference to Him. Now, you can either believe Him or you can say, Ah, I still think. No one cares what you think. And God doesn't care what you think either. By the way, to be very honest, you shouldn't care what you think. You ought to say, well, if that's the rules, if that's God laying down the standard, then I best obey Him. Now let's look at some of the things that point out our great need. And I call it the cross culture. And if you'll notice in your outline, I put save with a question mark because... When we read these things and study these things this morning, you're going to see something about the cross culture that is very disturbing because we don't look much better, and I'd say no better, than the world's culture when God comes to us. The first thing about the cross culture is this. It's not composed of nice people. Shocker! Ha <laughs> ha! We're not nice people. People are pretty much convinced these days that nice people are the ones that go to heaven and hell is for the thieves, the murderers, and the rapists of which they are not a part. When they paint their self-portrait, they are like the Pharisees of whom Jesus said, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. People have been painting their self-portraits ever since time in memorial. And let's be honest, don't we think better of ourselves than we do of others? We're always pointing the finger, well, I'm not like so-and-so, and that's the way we do, and we justify ourselves. So we're like these Pharisees. We, we think we look like whitewashed tombs that, that by glistening white, our building is beautiful white thanks to Dale's hard work. When the sun beats on that luminescent paint out there, it's bright. It's hard to even look at it unless you have sunglasses on. That's the way we want to appear to the world. We're, we're a shining light. We're, we look good to ourselves. And we think the world sees us that way, and they may because of deception and so on. But Jesus is looking deeper than that. He's looking inside. And what is he saying? He is saying that things are not as they appear. The Pharisees project an image, an air about them, an aura of respectability and moral integrity. And this is how the people perceive them. But inside, where only God can see, there's something very putrid going on. Jesus uses three descriptions. Dead men's bones, everything unclean, hypocrisy and wickedness. Those three descriptions. At Lazarus' tomb, when Jesus ordered that the stone sealing it be removed, we hear Martha, his sister, protest. But Lord, said Martha, by this time there's a bad odor. King James Version says, by this time he stinks. For he has been there for four days. John 11, verse 39. 
This is not pleasant, but I'm going to say it anyway. Think of the carrion that strews our highways when automobiles and living creatures collide. Deer, possum, raccoons. The dead remains lie there on the roadside, baking in the sun for days and weeks. And if you ever took a walk, if you ever rode your bike by a rotting carcass alongside of the road, the stench is nauseating. Working with the police officers in our county in the emergency management, they have confessed to me that entering a home of a dead person, not an animal, but a dead person, whose remains have been there for some time, the stench is overpowering. They can hardly bear it. Jesus was saying that the Pharisees, while appearing beautiful externally, were full of putrid remains on the inside, moral putrid, their best efforts, putrid. That's the first thing that he says about them. You're full of all kinds of unclean things. Secondly, everything unclean. Um, this is a neat Greek word. It's um, the Greek word, kathara, uh, from which we get catheter, catharsis, but they put, in this text, it puts a nay in front of it. So it's, anytime you put a nay in front of a word, it means not. Ah, catharsis is this word. And catharsis means a cleansing, a purgation of everything that's vile or corrupt, hence very, very clean. We would say sterile. There's not a germ on it. When people in the medical profession want to obtain the purest means of administering medication to a patient, they will use a catheter a, through a port to inject the medicine directly to the source needed to be treated. But Jesus said of the Pharisees that they were ah catharsis, that is, not clean, not pure, not sterile, amoral, not moral. Hence, morally corrupt in character while they painted themselves as the pillars of the community. And then the third phrase he uses, and said it's a dual, hypocrisy and wickedness. Hypocrisy because these men taught one thing and did another, and wickedness, Another Greek word with an A prefix in front of it. A nomos. Nomos is the Greek word for law. A nomos, lawless. Not a law abiding person. A law breaker. In other words, people whom society would define as transgressors or criminals. And the law under discussion here is God's law, which is above any law of man. And so Jesus is saying of the Pharisees that they were men who were, while being teachers of the law, they were, they were the theologians of the day, were actually lawbreakers in their personal lives. That was the nature of their hypocrisy. In Romans 2 verse 21, Paul put it this way. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? 
No, he was, a, he was addressing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You who say people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law on nomas? And then he answers his own questions and he says it this way. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the Greeks, the pagans, because of you. Because of you teachers of the law. Because of your hypocrisy. Because of your wickedness. So the Pharisees to whom Jesus spoke were guilty of trying to whitewash their lives so as to appear better than they were. And outside they looked righteous. They looked righteous enough to enter heaven. But God who looks upon the heart exposed their true identity to be full of the putrid stench of death, morally corrupt in nature and totally lawless and criminal in conduct when it came to the very law of God that they taught. And by the way, that's one of the great accusations that the world brings against you and I as Christians. Isn't that? Don't they hang that label on us? Hip, hypocrite? Isn't that label hung on us all the time? You hypocrites. Oh yeah, you, you people at Thornville, a bunch of hypocrites. What they're su suggesting, of course, in that is that you say one thing but you live another way. And if they're observing your life and they see some evidence of that, they are going to have somewhat justification for labeling you as hypocrite. That's the point of the, the accusation. Yet, yet, now listen, all of that being said, the Pharisees were the best of Jewish society in Jesus' day. The best. They were respected as men of learning, as men of influence. They were admired for their fastidiousness with regard to the letter of the law. They were accepted as pious men, as righteous men, as men of high caliber who could be trusted, looked up to. They were the best. You say, well, what has that got to do with us? Just this. Jesus told the people of his day, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachings and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5 verse 20. What a shocker. You mean we got to surpass the best of our, own, of our society? We got to outbest the lives of the Pharisees? Whatever can be said of the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were the orthodox believers. They weren't heretics. What they taught, they knew well. And of what they taught, Jesus said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So, listen to this, you must obey them. And do everything they tell you. What? Yeah. That's how good their teaching was. That's how good their understanding of the scriptures was. 
Oh, let me read the rest of the verse. But, says Jesus, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Ah, there's the hypocrisy. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. They're good on their teaching. Nothing wrong. They're orthodox. They're not heretics. They know their Bibles. They know the scriptures. They know the doctrines. A, B, C. They can go right through it. You'll learn, if you, if, you know, if you sit under them, you'll learn a lot about the Bible. And you'll learn about, a lot about God. Uh, but don't do what they do. Because they say one thing and do another. Let me ask, how do you measure up to the standard of these Pharisees? Are you orthodox in what you believe? Can you say that you know the Bible and its teachings and that you're able to uh, articulate the doctrines correctly? Is God well represented by your lips when you speak? Do you practice what you preach? No? Well, then, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I think the, the whole confrontation that we find in the gospel accounts between Jesus and the Pharisees is to show us that the, even the best of Jewish society, even the best of these men, were lost. Were lost. Because what had happened is that as they did these things, as they obeyed the law in their understanding of it and so forth, they became very proud and very arrogant. And I don't need God, although I teach about God. And it is because there are no nice people in the culture of the cross that Jesus came to die. We are born dead in trespasses and sins, writes Paul, full of stinking death towards God. We are morally corrupt and lawless in our behavior. We do not surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees, no way. We do not even match up to their external righteousness. Christ must die because there are no nice people on planet earth. We have that in our text, verse 6. We all like sheep, we all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Lawlessness. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the wickedness of us all. First reason we need to find ourselves on the road that goes to the cross is because even if we're in the cross culture, we're not nice people. Secondly, the cross culture is a disobedient people. We just read that all of, the, all of us, like wandering sheep, have turned to our own way. Well, what is our way? Solomon warns us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14, verse 12. That's the way we take. Obedience to God's law was the theme of the Jewish theocracy. God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. It contained as its heart the Decalogue, Deca meaning ten, Logos, word. The ten words of Moses are the Ten Commandments. That's how we come up with that. And yet you all know that while Moses was receiving the law from God on the mountain, what were the people doing? They were at the base of the mountain fornicating, 
and engaging in all kinds of lewd behavior while Moses was getting the Ten Commandments on stone. And they attributed their deliverance from Egypt to a golden calf of all things, which Aaron fashioned from their own gold jewelry. Think about that. The living God and His word had been replaced by an idol of their own making. Idolatry of this sort is always amazing to me. People take a stone or molten precious metals and they fashion it and they pour it into a mold and, and then they carve it and put in intricacies, intricacies on it and they set it on a little marble pedestal and then they bow down to it and say, that's my God. There's something incongruous about that. And wait a minute. I made it. I formed it. I decorated it. I stuck it on a pedestal. And that's my God, my boss, my creator, the one that I worship and bow down to. No one ever said sin was rational, <laughs> that idolatry is rational. We're insane to do those kind of things. Insane. Satan would have us be insane in those things. Well, Israel was judged severely by God on that occasion, a correction designed to demonstrate that there is ever only one God and they needed to take seriously obedience to His commands. Yet again and again, this generation of Israelites grumbled against God and disobeyed His word. Even Aaron's two sons, serving as priests, were incinerated by fire from heaven because they disobeyed the clear terms of worship that God had set down in the law. And God says that Israel tried His patience ten times by the time they reached the promised land. Their refusal to trust God and enter the land by faith was the straw that broke God's patience. And that whole generation, think about it, that whole generation that came to freedom through the Red Sea crossing out of Egypt, that whole generation was turned back into the wilderness by God where they wandered for 40 years until they all died off. Hebrews 3, 18 and 19 gives us this interpretation. And to whom did God swear? that they would never enter His rest, if not to those who disobeyed. So we see that they were not able to enter, that is the promised land, because of their unbelief. Hebrews 3, 18 and 19. They got right up to the door of the promised land. They said, oh, there's giants in there. There's big fortified cities. We can't whip those people. And they refused to cross Jordan. Joshua says, come on. Caleb says, come on. We can do this. Hasn't God been with us since we left Egypt? You know what they did? They said, oh, we're going to elect a new leader and, and he can take us back to Egypt. Back to Egypt. Boy, short memories. Wow. Now you would think that the new generation of Israelites, the children of the Exodus parents would have learned from the sin of their mothers and fathers by taking to heart God's judgment that fell upon their own parents and that they would resolve to obey God's law henceforth. Well, under Joshua's leadership, they, the new generation, conquered their enemies in Palestine and Joshua gave them this final charge. 
Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua 24, verse 14. You mean they're, they're carrying little idols with them? All those 40 years out there, you know? The parents are dying off. The new generation's coming up. And inside their coat, inside their bags, they got their little idols that they brought with them from Egypt. Throw away your gods. Serve the Lord. He went on to affirm his own position. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. This new generation got all excited. They said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us up and our fathers out of Egypt. See, they acknowledge that. From the land of slavery, they acknowledge that. Perform great signs before our eyes, they acknowledge that. Next verse. He protected us on our entire journey and among all of the nations through which we traveled and the Lord drove out before us all the nations including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Joshua 24 verse 16 through 18. He's our guy. This is encouraging news, isn't it? I think it is. Wow. Shows... It shows us that this new generation has been paying attention. They did see that it was God who had delivered them. And they did see that it was God who cared for them and protected them in their wilderness journey. We breathe a sigh of relief. Wow. We have hope that this new generation will not duplicate the sins of their fathers. And then Joshua steps forward and he declares this truth. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. Oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after He has been good to you. Joshua 24, verse 19 and 20. What was He doing? He was just telling it like it is. You're all excited today. I can see you're all excited. You think, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to do better than our fathers. He stands before the people, an old man. He says, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. And within one generation, a generation is about what, 35, 38 years? Within one generation, Judges 2 verse 11 says of this new generation of Israelites, every man did as he saw fit. That is to say, the new generation turned to their own way and away from God in about 35, 38 years. And it was downhill thereafter. The cross culture fares no better. Paul says that we enter this world dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 verse 1. And transgressions is a reference to God's law. And we learned that last week, of stepping over a boundary line and then becoming guilty and liable to being sentenced. All law has the same stipulation. But beloved, the higher the lawgiver, the more severe the penalty. 
grow marijuana in a cornfield in Michigan and you'll end up in the county jail. Smuggle marijuana across the Canadian border and you'll end up in federal prison. Cross the no trespass line on a landowner's property and you'll get a fine and lose your hunting privileges. Cross the line of God's divine law and you die. You die. The wages of sin is death. And John tells us everyone who sins breaks the law. In other words, he's saying we're all transgressors of God's law. That's what sin is. We step over the line. Cross-culture is compromise, is comprised rather of disobedient people, and that's why we need a savior with a cross. Thirdly, the cross-culture consists of a non-submissive people non-submissive. They see the boundaries. It's not that. They weigh the consequences, at least what they know about the consequences, and they say, I don't care. I'm crossing the line anyway. I think of those hikers that are always getting caught on Iran's border. You mean to tell me they don't know where the borderline is? It's not marked or something? I don't know. I'm not, I'm not over there in Iran. But I would think if you're going to be hiking in a foreign country, and especially in one that says, stay out, or we're going to throw you in prison and do all kinds of things to you, that you would know where the border is. And sometimes people just, but that mountain looks so high, so nice. No one's ever climbed that from America. I don't know if that's what goes on in their, in their minds. Why are they always getting caught doing these things? It isn't, you see, that we just step over the line of God's law by accident or because we are half asleep and don't have a clue as to what we're doing. There's nothing innocent about our attitude towards God's law. It's like a hunter that, that is faced with a no trespassing sign, but what he saw was this prized buck, 16-pointer, cross the line and go into the private property. He walks up to the line, he's looking right at the trespass sign, he goes, he's looking this way and that way, and then he does this. He steps over the line. Why? Because they can see nothing but that 16-point rack mounted on their den wall. And they don't care about the wall. They want what they want. They want the pleasure. They want the bragging rights. And if it means to defy the law, then defy the law. By the way, this just happened to a hunter last hunting season, wasn't it? Some guy up North Branch shot this buck with, I don't know, maybe it was six, I think it was 16 points or larger, but he didn't have a hunting license. But he's out hunting. So he shot the buck and then he went to the store and bought the hunting license to try to put the tag on, on the thing. But his buddy told on him, <laughs> somebody there. And um, so he got fined and lost the deer too. But that's what I'm talking about. They know the law and they say, mm, yeah, but they, you know, that's such a prize. You do it anyway. Now, how much more serious, beloved, is the law of God, which deals with how sinners may be reconciled to God? 
and how they may live in a way that pleases Him instead of angering Him. To defy man's law may result in a temporal punishment, but to defy God's law results in long-lasting, never-ending, unrelenting punishment. Jesus calls it, and these are His words, eternal punishment. Matthew 24, verse 46. I wouldn't like those two words connected any which way. Eternal and punishment. The namby-pamby, milk-toast, flower-child, effeminate God of love that most churches proclaim today is nothing to fear. So people see their defiance to His will as no big deal. Oh, just chill out. God loves me. But friends, that's not the God of the Bible who everywhere proclaims, make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure that there's no root among you that produces such bitter poison. When such a person bears the words of his oath, he invokes a blessing on himself and therefore thinks, I'll be safe even though I persist in going my own way. This will be to bring disaster. The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against that man. All the curses written in this book will fall upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 through 20. God isn't lenient when it comes to lawbreakers. Bottom line is, you, is this. If you defy God, you die. There is no such thing as a little sin. An insignificant sin, a minor sin. Every sin, when you're talking about God's law, every sin is a capital offense worthy of capital punishment because when we sin, we defy our Creator and the only God that there is. We read this verse last week, Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There's a second death. And that death never ends. It goes on and on. That's that eternal punishment Jesus talked about. And this is the culture of the cross and how we need a Savior to step in and take our punishment for us. And finally, the cross culture is not able and not willing. It does not consist of a, an able and a willing people. By able, I mean possessing that innate capability to respond aright to what God expects and commands of us. Didn't we just learn that about Israel? They had the law, God's righteous law. God says, you know, if you obey this, you'll live. But they couldn't do it. We can't do it either. We know that it is impossible for a person to behave in a way that is foreign to what they are by nature, and that is a universal truism. And while each of us have a particular sin that we fancy and cultivate, God is not more lenient in dispensing justice to liars than He is to rapists to gossips over murderers. And as noted earlier, the penalty for all sin is death, no matter the offense, because the infraction is against a holy and perfect God. But maybe people can change, we think. The world believes that people can change through education. And the assumption is that people act the way they do, including deviant behavior, because they don't know any better. 
they're just products of their upbringing, their environment, but if we can show them a better way to live, they will see the value of it and they will change. Well, let me say, it's one thing to stop smoking and give up drunkenness. It's quite another thing to have done so by faith in God and for the glory of God. So why would you bring that in? Because of this. The Bible declares, listen to this, here's this. You've got to get this verse down. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Romans 14, verse 23. Did you get that? If there's no faith in God in it, in what you do, it's sin. People give up drinking because it ruined their lives, their marriage. They ended in divorce. Their kids deserted them. It had nothing to do with seeking forgiveness from God and desiring change that would bring glory to God. Education can reform our thinking, but it does not change human nature. The men on Wall Street who ran their companies into bankruptcy were not stupid. They were not ignorant men, but they were wicked men. They used their knowledge... Their know-how of the market and how it works to rob their companies blind while making themselves rich. You say, who, who would do that? People who have no inclination towards and no ability to obey God's command, thou shalt not steal. And don't even consider that. It's no difference when we come to the New Testament law of Christ, which says, The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark 1, verse 15. People cannot repent. People cannot believe when they are called upon to repent is of the sin that they love by nature and the object in whom they are to place their faith, God, is someone they hate. We're asking the impossible. Let me read it for you. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Romans 8, verse 7 and 8. And we are controlled by the sinful nature. That's, that's the point. This then is the cross culture. The people for whom the cross is available and essential are not nice people. They're morally bankrupt. They are not obedient people. They're disobedient. They're not submissive people. They're defiant people. Deliberate trespassers. And they're incapable and unwilling to obey. They're insolent and arrogant God-haters, poised as His enemy and opting to go their own way even if it leads them to the precipice of hell. Now I say, well, that is, that, that is, that's the picture that the Bible paints of us who are believers. So, next time somebody says to you, you are a hypocrite, you know what you should do? Just take the wind right out of the sails. Say, you're absolutely right. I'm a hypocrite. And that's why I need a Savior. And so do you. And just turn it into an occasion to tell them that you're not saying in the gospel that you're better than them. You are, in fact, saying, I'm as bad as you are. I'm not claiming to be a nice person, a righteous person. 
but I know someone who is. And that brings us to the last point of our outline, the cross bought. We are bought by the blood of the cross. God takes the initiative. It's pretty self-evident from our study that the culture of the cross isn't any different from the world's culture at large. We are every bit as much in a bad way spiritually. Dead in trespasses and sin is not a label which only the lost wear. We can identify with the Apostle Paul who cried out, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7 verse 24. Paul felt the weight of death. He didn't see any redeeming qualities in his life. He saw nothing in his own credentials to commend himself to God. And let me tell you, Paul had credentials. Wonderful, glowing, honorable, praiseworthy credentials. He tells us about them in Romans 7 verse 7. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, you want to talk about boasting? I can boast a little bit. And he begins. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I'm an Israelite. Of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews, which means I'm a teacher among the Hebrew people. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I know my book. I know my Bible. As for legalistic righteousness, I am faultless. Philippians 3, verse 4 through 6. It's almost like he's ready to say, who can accuse me of sin? Like Jesus said. Yet there was no love for God in what he did. And there was no intention that God would get the glory for what he did. He was consumed by the sin of pride, which is self-love, and by covetousness, according to Romans 7, verse 7. That was his major sin. His deliverance came from God through Jesus Christ. God took the initiative to change him on the inside, which affected him on the outside. He was on the Damascus Road. He was on his way to arrest more Christians and put them to death. He was met by Christ and rebuked by Christ for persecuting him and his people. And what I am saying here is that he never came to God. God came to him. John writes it this way, this is love. Not, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. God took the initiative for the cross people. He came to us. We didn't go to Him. And secondly, He worked a glorious transformation through the work of His cross. How does God get amoral people to live moral lives? How does He get the disobedient to obey Him, the defiant to submit to His law, the unwilling and the unable to acquiesce and to delight in the gospel? That's quite, you know, we're talking 180 degree changes here. Well, God doesn't do that through education. He doesn't send us off to the church or to Bible school. He says, this is how we're, we'll get you straightened out. 
The Pharisees were products of that kind of thinking. There's only one way of transformation that occurs, and that is God has to kill us. Say, what? Yeah. That old nature which is so defiant to God and His goodness has to die and in its place God has to give us a brand new nature that is the spiritual opposite to the old. Listen to Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. And I, Paul, the sinner, no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. The cross is Jesus dying for his people, yes, but it is also his people dying with him. In Him, so that in the end, someone new is born. And we call it in the scripture, born again. Born again. To Nicodemus, a law-abiding Pharisee, just like Paul, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. John 3, verse 3. Nicodemus, you're... Man, I love you. You're a good man. You're a good teacher of the law. But I'm telling you right now that unless you're reborn, unless you get a new nature, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. This new nature has abilities that the old did not. But now you must get rid, you rid yourself of all such things as these. Listen. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips... Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and in the image of its creator. Oh, a creator has created a new image for us. Colossians 3, 8 through 10. Transformation, friends, comes no other way. The cross is what redeems people. It pays their debt to sin and it gives them a fresh start. The cross buys us back from Satan's captivity. Yes, it does more. It kills us. It rebirths us. It makes us like the Christ of the cross. The old is no more and the new comes and our friends wonder at the transformation. They cannot reconcile in their minds the difference between the boastful, self-centered, foul-mouthed, immoral person you were and the person who now speaks with love and charity, who tells the truth, who is humble and unassuming, and whose character isn't wallowing in the gutter 24 hours a day. And they say things to us, what's happened to you? You're different. Are you okay? They're trying to figure us out 
And the simple answer is that God has changed us from the inside out. And we say things, well, you know, I'm not the man I once was. I'm not the woman you remember me to be. Well, what, 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 what's changed? And they opened the door for us to share with him the gospel of the cross. So the cross has immeasurable value that no believer is willing to denigrate or ignore. And I have to ask the question, has the cross come to you? Have you died to your old way of thinking and living? Has God come to you? If you hear his voice, do not turn a deaf ear. If God enables you to see your sin, guess what? You're on the road to seeing the Savior too. Because most people don't see their sin. If you're seeing that, God is dawning upon you with light. And He's wooing you down pilgrim's pathways we're studying on Sunday night towards that cross. It's a marvelous thing to be born anew. To be able to think good thoughts now. To have a mouth that isn't sewer mouth. To have thoughts that are moral and pure. To have activities with hands, feet, and so forth that seek to do good to people and to love them in practical ways. That's what the cross does for us. I'm not giving it up. And I'm praying for you if you don't know the Christ of the cross that he'll draw you now to come to know him. There's no life like this life. None. Paul told Timothy, tell the rich who are rich in good deeds, tell them to do those things which are pleasing to God, that they might obtain the life that is real life. They think they're living high on the hog. It's got money to burn. But when they come to know Christ, then they enter into real life. Because guess what? All those things you love, all those things you put great weight on, they're destined to burn and perish at the day of judgment. I don't want you to burn and perish. I want you to enter into the glory that God has for you. And he says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says, I can't even describe it. I, I can't begin to write it down. It's so glorious. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for showing us a little bit from your word today the problem of our own hearts. If we are members of the cross culture, it's not because we're nice people or obedient or submissive to your law. No, we're just like the world. That's where you find your people. You find them in the world. <laughs> and you transform them. You take the initiative. You come to us. We don't come to you. And then... You grant us this new nature, this new heart 
It's prophesied in the Old Testament that you would take that heart of stone out, put in a new heart that would beat after you, that would have a love for you. So I pray for everyone that's struggling this morning with sin, weighed down with the burden of it. Lord, turn their lives around. Show them the love of Christ. Show them that great condescension to come from glory to a cross of all places that he might pay the debt of his people. Grant us the faith to believe because we don't have faith. Grant us repentance because we love our sin. Do this for your glory. Do this for our good, that we may praise you. Amen. <laughs>